Who's the Boss? How many of you are old enough to actually remember that sitcom? Okay, more than I thought, right? The sitcom was about an ex-Major League Baseball player, played by Tony Danza, whose young wife had died, and he had injured his shoulder, and so he could no longer play baseball. He was looking for a job, and he was looking to get out of New York City with his daughter, and so he ended up taking a job as, do you remember? A housekeeper for a high-powered executive who was played by the role of Judith, or by the, by the actress Judith Light. Judith was a single mother. The show really upset societal norms that were still intact in the early 80s, especially gender roles in the household. And in the very first episode, Judith had a hard time even hiring Tony because he was a man. Is it possible, the question was implicitly posed throughout the series, for a man to serve in a subservient role in the home? Well, gender roles weren't the only thing that were challenged in that show. I actually watched that very first episode, the first 15 or 20 minutes of it uh, this week, and, and I found that in the very first episode, the, the woman's young son refused to obey her when she told him to take his pet snake out of the living room. Tony, who was interviewing for the job, sat down with this little boy and proceeded to reason with him successfully as to why he should take the snake out of the living room. It seemed cute at the time, but in a very subtle way, Hollywood brought into question not only leadership roles, but even the simple act of obedience by children. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying this morning that, that, that a man can't be a housekeeper, right? and I'm also not saying that a woman can't be exec- in an executive. That's not my point at all, but as we approach the text this week, a text Martin Luther referred to as a table of household duties. The question posed by that sitcom kept ringing in my mind. Who's the boss? Who's the boss? None of us really want a boss, do we? By the way, I have two of my bosses here this morning. My supervisor and my supervisor's supervisor, right? So I do want a boss, sir, I promise you. But, but how many of us, there are books and there are podcasts that abound about how to break free of having a boss, how to be your own boss, how to get out of the nine-to-five trap that we find ourselves in. And children, they certainly don't want a boss. Don't believe me? Well, just watch any of our families this morning. It's a beautiful thing, by the way, that we have so many kids. We love that. We are young. We're vibrant. But, but just watch your kids. Even my two youngest ones this morning attempted to varying degrees of success to throw fits, temper tantrums, to get what they wanted. Go to a grocery store, go to Walmart, and you will watch children trying to exert authority and to prove that they are, in fact, the boss. To make matters worse, our culture is telling children that they can be their own boss even when it comes to gender identification. And in some schools, they don't even need to tell their parents anymore. Even in the military, The military, which is by necessity an authority-based structure, the rights of training instructors and ranking military members have been limited in favor of individualism. To a culture of people desiring to be their own boss, the message of the gospel is foreign. For it declares that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the ultimate authority, 
that he is the ultimate boss, as it were. And whether we submit to or we recognize his lordship or not, he has never abdicated his throne. He is the ultimate and the final answer to that question, who's the boss? Now, in case you're joining us for the first time this morning, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a young church in the ancient city of Ephesus, the capital of that region in Asia, and a commercial center. To this city, Paul had come to preach the gospel. He had planted a church there, much like we have done here in San Antonio. And to this young church that is attempting to live for God in the midst of utter paganism, Paul, who's imprisoned at the time of penning these words, writes. I like the way one commentator organized the book. He said there are three different postures we take in Ephesians. We sit, we walk, and we stand. In the first three chapters, we sit under the gospel. We absorb rich theology to include the truth that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, that faith is, in fact, a gift, and that we are saved by grace. And today, we're going to round out the middle section of the book in which Paul instructs us on how we are to walk in a way that is worthy of our calling. And next week, we'll look at how we are implored to stand against the attacks of the enemy. So as we finish out this section on walking, Paul drills down even more deeply into how the gospel impacts our day-to-day relationships. Today, while the Western church emphasizes individual faith, it too often neglects attending to the consequences of our new identities as sons of God. How should we live? How should this new identity impact relationships? Paul tells us in chapter 5, verse 18, that it is a life that is filled with the Spirit that we should live. And adds a modifier at the end of a very long run-on sentence in the original Greek, verses 18 through 21. At the end, he says that we are to walk submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In a nutshell, walking in a way that is worthy of our calling means submitting. Christians are to be submitting people. Now, in one sense, we should always submit, right, to each other, no matter who we are and who the people we are submitting to. Husbands should submit, in one sense, to wives, wives to husbands, parents to children, children to parents. That is, we should seek the interests of others above our own. We should submit in that we relate to each other in kindness and in deference to the needs and the desires of the other. We should live by the example of Jesus, who in Philippians 2, we're told, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You see, Christians are to be submitting people. But in another sense, we are to submit to others according to the authority that God has established. That's where Paul's taking us beginning in chapter 5, verse 22, with husbands and wives, and continuing now in chapter 6 with the examples of fathers and children and masters and slaves. We looked at the marriage relationship two weeks ago, and this morning we're going to tackle the other two sets of relationships. Hold on to your seats, because we've got a lot to get through today. Let's open the text, and then we're going to pray together. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, I'll be reading to you from the English Standard Version. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, 
that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. Would you pray with me? God, this morning I need your help. I am weak, I am feeble, and I am unable on my own to communicate the powerful and life-transforming words of the gospel. But it is through the foolishness of preaching that you choose to save souls and to transform lives. And so I stand before you today a broken vessel, asking that you would pour through me your grace, your mercy, and your truth into the lives, to the hearts, and to the minds of your people. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in your sight be pleasing, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we open this morning's text, we find that children are the very first group of people to be addressed with the words, children, obey your parents. Now, I have a feeling if Ephesus had been a black church today, when Paul spoke those words, children, obey your parents, some parents would have got excited and said, amen, preach it, Paul. But what we fail to understand is that before we even can explain or or unpack the words, obey your parents, we've got to consider the fact that Paul even addressed children in the first place. The fact that they were included in this letter is an indication from the earliest church that they included children in a time of worship, not only to praise, but to hear the word. Why else would Paul have spoken to children? Now, I'm not advocating for the cancellation of Children's Church, Andrew and Jared, don't worry. But, but what I am saying is that Children's Church shouldn't just be a babysitting service. We don't believe it is. We're pouring into their lives. But I also believe that as soon as children are able to sit under the Word, it's good for them to be with us and to hear the Word. But even beyond their presence in the worshiping community is the fact that he addresses them at all. It's an indication of the pervasive influence in the church of Jesus' words, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Words addressed to children don't strike us as surprising, but they would have been radical in the first century. And a day when unwanted babies were abandoned and left to die, weak and deformed infants were killed, and even healthy children were regarded as a nuisance because they inhibited sexual promiscuity and complicated easy divorce. The dignity that Paul lent to children by calling them out in this letter should not go unnoticed. To these children, Paul gives this admonition, obey your parents. 
Now, I didn't want to ignore the fact that children were, were addressed, and so I want to address for a moment the children in here. Children, if you are under 18, child, teenager, under 18, would you raise your hand? Let us know where you are. We have them all over the place. Ben, put your hand up. Thank you. See, that's a simple act of obedience, right? How many of you would say it's difficult sometimes to obey your parents? Go ahead. It's okay, right? Do you want to know why, Cassie? Because you were born a sinner. That's right. Before you could ever understand what it meant to defy or disobey your parents, Adeline, you were a sinner. When you were an adorable infant wrapped in your mother's arms, Ben, in your heart you had a disease. It's called sin. And the reason, the reason that you have this disease, Alex, is not because you lie, it's not because you cheat, it's not because you hit your siblings or disobey your parents. Rather, the reason you do all those things, I was going to say Joshua, but I don't think he's in here. I'll pick on somebody else, okay? Chloe, the reason you do all those things is because you have this disease. And listen to me, young people. If something isn't done about that disease that you have in your heart, one day it will lead you to a place called hell, where forever and ever you'll be separated from all that is good, and you will suffer more than you could possibly ever imagine. Does that make sense? But here's the thing. When you're old enough to believe that Jesus came to die for your sin and to give you new life and to accept his death for you, he wants to give you a new heart that desires to please him. And while you will still struggle with that old disease, you can be given a cure for it so you don't have to go on doing what you know to be wrong. In other words, it's possible for you to obey your parents. If you've never accepted that cure and you've never given your life to Jesus, come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Andrew, Pastor Jared, or your parents this morning. And so to you, children, from the youngest age to the oldest age, Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, the word for obedience doesn't need a lot of unpacking. I think we all understand what it means. Put simply, it means you hear something and you do it. If this afternoon I say to Ben, one of his household responsibilities is to take out the garbage, I say, Ben, take out the garbage. When he gets up, he goes out, takes the garbage out. That's a simple act of obedience. Paul tells children to obey. For three reasons, basically. Number one, because of God's natural law. Obey because it's right, Paul says in verse one. In other words, this is written on the fabric of the human conscience. You don't need to be a Christian to understand that children obeying their parents is a good thing. Virtually all civilizations have regarded the recognition of parental authority as indispensable to a stable society. Obedience is a part of the natural law that God gave us. Children need the guidance of parents for safeguarding and upbringing. Without it, they would probably die. Second, obey your parents because of God's written law. He continues in verse 2, honor your father and mother. And if you're following along in your Bible, you probably have quotation marks around that phrase. Why? Because it's one of the Ten Commandments. Interestingly, if you divide the first the Ten Commandments into two groups, the first five and the second five, um, you'll see that, that the second five all seem to be about your horizontal relationships. But number five of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, also seems to be horizontal. But the ancient Jews didn't divide it that way. 
they said that the, the, the fifth commandment actually belonged to the first four commandments. Because even as a young child, your parents represent God to you. And you represent for them the love of God. You mediate on their behalf. And so obeying your parents, ancient Jews would say, was actually an act of obedience to God. It was an act of worship. In fact, it was taken so seriously in the Old Testament that, that if you didn't obey your parents, if you were found to be in persistent rebellion and persistent disobedience, children, do you know what the penalty was? It was nothing short of death. That's right. A son could be put to death if he was persistently rebellious and disobedient and parents had done everything they could, but he just wouldn't listen. That's pretty scary, right, kids? So we should obey... Not that we're going to put any of you to death, please. I did not, I'm not saying that. But we should obey, not only because it's right in the natural law, but because God commanded it in his written law. Third, Paul says, children, obey your parents because it's for your good. Paul enforces this obedience with a promise. He references Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16, when he says that this is the first commandment with a promise. What is that promise? Well, he quotes the Old Testament when he writes that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, this verse raises a lot of questions, and it's not uh, incredibly easy to understand. It sounds a little, like, a little like health and wealth teaching that we hear of today. A little like prosperity gospel, that if you just do what is right, everything will go well with you. Well, friends, this isn't a guarantee. It's not that kind of promise. If you are a young person who is truly following Christ, your salvation will work itself out through obedience to your parents. And the promise is that you will be blessed with eternal life. But here and now, you might be obedient and you might not live a long life. Or you might be disobedient and you might live a long life. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that, that in general, here's what I think at least, in general, if you learn to obey from a young age, like the Proverbs teach us, things tend to go better for you. They tend to go better for you. Children that have structure and discipline and a healthy home life, where they learn respect and boundaries tend to do better than those without those things. So children, obey your parents because it's for your good. Now before I leave the instruction for our children, let me bring some application and a couple of questions answered for you that you might have. Number one, should obedience be absolute? In other words, should children always obey their parents no matter what? What if a Christian youth is told to do something that conflicts with scripture that goes against his or her faith? For that answer, we need to look at the modifying phrase that Paul uses. Look again at verse one, children obey your parents in the Lord. A child that is old enough to trust in Christ has a primary allegiance to Jesus. Jesus must have had such conflict in mind when he spoke in Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 through 37. Listen to his words. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What's Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that our allegiance needs to always be to him first. And if it conflicts with our allegiance to family, then our allegiance to him must take precedence. 
So children, obey your parents in all things, unless they're specifically telling you to disobey the Word of God. And then I would encourage you to get some counsel. If you're old enough to be thinking through that, you need to talk to somebody to make sure that disobedience is the right thing. I would suggest you come talk to one of your pastors, come talk to an aunt, uncle, grandparent who is a believer. Find someone to speak to. But in general, yes, you should obey, unless it conflicts with the Word of God. Here's the next question. This is what, one of the things that I was thinking about this week. Is there an expiration date on obedience? Have you ever thought about that? Does an 85-year-old man have the right to call his 60-year-old son and tell him to come and mow the lawn today? Does this command extend forever until your parent dies? Well, I don't think there's any single answer to that question, and it also varies by culture. It varies by, by country. Here in our culture, we typically gain independence from our parents when we move out of the home. 18 years old, 25 years old, 30 years old, whatever that is. I think a good biblical perspective on this can be found in Genesis 2.24, where God tells us that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. I believe, personally, that obedience ceases when independence is gained. When a child moves out on his or her own, obedience may cease, but here's the thing, honor must never cease. So that means that no matter what age you are, you should respect and treat your parents with esteem and love that they deserve because God placed them over you. And finally, what role do parents play in obedience? We know that children are to obey, but what role do the parents play? The obligation to obey is not merely on the side of the child, but also on the parent who must enforce obedience. To teach the child to obey them is to teach the child to obey God. To allow defiance and disobedience is to teach the child to defy and disobey God. The stakes are that high. Disobedience is not cute. Parents, we've got to take this seriously. Kids of all ages, no matter what age you are, let me leave you with this thought in this section. When you obey and honor your parents, you obey and honor Jesus. Let me say that again. When you obey and honor your parents, you obey and honor Jesus. Why? Because he's ultimately your boss. How about parents? What does Paul say to parents in this passage? Well, look with me now, continuing on at verse 4. Paul continues by addressing fathers specifically. It's not to exclude mothers, but it's recognizing what he's already taught, that the father has a God-given responsibility to lead the household. So the father is the one God will ultimately hold responsible for the upbringing of his children. But these instructions apply not just to him, but to the mother as well. They come in two parts. There's one positive and one negative. The first is, do not provoke your children to anger. Parents, your discipline should be intentional and it should be purposeful. It should not be excessive. You shouldn't nag or ride your children's cases unnecessarily. And what's more, you should be seeking to build them up rather than to tear them down. Paul went on in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21 to say, Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Let that sink in for a moment. Some of you came from homes where harsh, unkind, and cruel words were regularly dished out to you. They stung, they hurt, and you carry them with you to this day. Now I want you to think about the kids that you parent. How many times have we as parents discouraged our children by unkind or harsh words? And how many times have we provoked them to anger by responding in anger ourselves? We need to seek instead to be encouraging our children 
not provoking them and tearing them down. Martin Luther once said, spare the rod and spoil the child. That is true, but beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he is done well. The second instruction is positive. Look at the second half of verse 4. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. How do we do that? Well, we need to be in the Word if we're going to bring them up in the Word. We need to be in the Word ourselves. We need to be constantly growing in godliness ourselves. We must be seeking to live by the discipline and instruction of the Lord if we are to model the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Godly parenting isn't easy. It takes work. It requires sacrifice. It's messy. You will shed tears and you will lose sleep if you do this right. I promise you that because I know that's been true in my own journey. About 20 years ago, the Christian band Phillips, Craig, and Dean released a song and, and the chorus went like this. Lord, I want to be just like you because he wants to be just like me. I want to be a living example for his innocent eyes to see. Help me be a living Bible, Lord, that my little boy can read. Lord, I want to be just like you, because he wants to be like me. Dads and moms in here, your kids are looking to you for instruction and guidance. And the Lord is looking to you to provide it. That means discussing the Word of God with them. It, it means teaching them a biblical worldview. It means modeling godliness and righteousness. It means, if you're married, having a loving and faithful marriage. It means being humble and asking for forgiveness from your spouse, from others, to include your children when you're wrong. Bringing your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord isn't going to happen by accident. It will require your dedication and your obedience to God. Let me make two final observations about this role of parenting here. First, children are still their own people. And they are responsible before God. If God allows, they will grow and they will become adults. And when Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a, not a guarantee. That's a proverb. And so if you have a child this morning who is not walking with the Lord, who's abandoned God, it's not necessarily your fault. Continue to model righteousness and pray for them. I want to be real with you this morning. I don't think most of you have met, I don't think most of you have met our adult children. We have two adult children. I have a daughter and a son. And my son Josiah is 23, currently lives in Montana, says he was once a Christian, but now he denies that he's a Christian. I don't get emotional. I pray for Josiah daily. And I continue to endeavor to model righteousness for him. But ultimately, Josiah stands before God for his actions. And I had to stop blaming myself for where he's at today. I wasn't perfect, but I didn't totally fail him. And this morning, I want to encourage you, if you're in that place and you have a prodigal, not to beat yourself up and to blame yourself. Continue to pray for them. Continue to model godliness and righteousness. And one more observation, maybe you didn't raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and maybe you've come to the faith later, and now you're saying, what about me? I raised my children not to know the Lord. What about me? Well, let me say to you, God is gracious and forgiving. And it's never too late to begin modeling righteousness and praying for your children. So parents, parents, bring your children up in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. Why? Because 
Jesus is your boss too. You are to be submitting to him ultimately. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There was enough content in this passage to preach two full sermons. Okay? We, put, we pulled them together. Um, and yesterday, as I, was, I worked from early in the morning till late at night, pulling this together, um, I realized, wow, there's a lot in here. We're going to move into this second part of the text. Stay with me because we're going to have to shift tracks um, substantially and, and consider new relationships. But the ultimate idea of who's your boss still applies. Okay? So think about the slave-master relationship. Okay. Now, before we unpack this part of the text, let me just tell you up front, we don't have time to talk about why Paul did not call for the abolition of slavery. We just don't have time to get into that this morning. And the reality is, anything I could throw at you this morning would all be conjecture anyways. I don't know for sure why Paul didn't call for an end to slavery. There's a lot of suggestions, a lot of ideas. I'd love to have a conversation with Paul and Glory about that and understand it more fully. But what I do know is that all Scripture is inspired. I believe that every word is profitable. And so we're going to look at this text. We're going to unpack it, and then I'm going to draw what I think is some application for us today. Paul addresses slaves in verses 5 through 8. In the ESV, they're called bondservants, and he tells them to obey their earthly masters. Now, these verses are very controversial. Some non-believers throw out Scripture altogether because they look at a passage like this and they say, well, if the Bible didn't oppose slavery, I can't take it seriously. Some churches dismiss the authority of other passages of Scripture, like um, a text around sexual issues, and they use this one as a basis for doing so. Still other Christians in the dark days leading up to and during the Civil War use this passage to justify slavery. Well, let me outline a couple of points before we look specifically at Paul's words and seek to apply them. Number one, the Bible clearly speaks against slavery by kidnapping and against racial prejudice. Exodus 21 verse 16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So the entire slave trade of the 18th and 19th centuries in the United States, based on kidnapping of human beings together with the human trafficking that occurs right here in San Antonio today, it is detestable to God. Second, enslaving human beings because of their race or their nationality flies in the face of our belief that we are all created in the image of God. Every one of us. And you can't take Scripture seriously and, and believe that you can discriminate against someone because of their race. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, paints a picture where John um, says this. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And he goes on to paint this picture that they are all worshiping. The biblical worldview is one that is opposed to any slavery by kidnapping and any type of racial prejudice. Now, number two, this may surprise some of you, the Old Testament does allow for indentured servitude. In the Old Testament, people could be taken into a servant relationship, a slave relationship for several reasons, but two of the primary reasons are that they were unable to pay a debt or they could be captured in war. And while the Bible permitted this type of slavery, it also gave very clear guidance as to how slaves were to be treated. Hebrew slaves in particular were to be treated as full members of the community. They were to be given the same break, rest periods, and holidays as non-slaves. They were to receive the, the same treatment, and every seventh year they were to be released. Generally speaking, slavery was an arrangement 
It was an arrangement there was a way out of. It was often a, an arrangement to pay a debt back to someone that was owed. Number three, slavery in New Testament times was not the same as that of the 18th and 19th centuries in America. A high percentage of the Roman Empire, as much as 10 to 15%, in fact, were slaves. And slavery was just accepted as a part of the economy. Slaves were not just manual laborers, as we think of them. They represented all walks of life. Some were doctors, lawyers, and educators. It was such an integral part of the society that no one questioned it. And while there were plenty of examples of harsh, dehumanizing behavior, it was in the best interest of slave owners then to take care of their slaves because they were represented a large capital investment for them. Number four, like every human institution, slavery grew more and more sinful throughout history until we saw the worst treatment of slaves in the 18th and 19th centuries in America. A far cry from the indentured servitude that was guided in the Old Testament. And finally, number five, in the kingdom of God, there is neither slave nor free. We need to remember that. We said this before, the church is a kingdom outpost. We are a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will look like. We're an imperfect, we're an incomplete glimpse, but a glimpse nonetheless of what the lordship and the rule of the king looks like in our lives. And so when Paul says in Galatians 3.28 that there is neither slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ Jesus, we get a picture that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. And so when the church gathers, all the social divisions become irrelevant, those divisions that will one day be obsolete in the kingdom of God. So with those things in mind, listen to Paul's instructions. Like his addressing children and thereby lending them value and dignity, he does the same for slaves. He speaks to them. He calls them out. And what's he say? Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Like children, they are to live lives of obedience. But he adds a modifier. They are to do so with fear and trembling. Not the kind of fear and trembling that we often associate with but rather a fear and trembling that's based in reverence and respect. They are to obey, not begrudgingly, but rather with a respect for the authority of their master. It reflects the lifestyle of walking in submission that Paul has already told us marks us. And why should they obey? Well, if there will be no slave, if there will be no free in the kingdom of God, if slavery will one day be abolished, then why should they obey their masters now? Well, I think we find the answer in the way Paul frames his instructions. Listen again. Obey as you would Christ. Not by way of the eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as the Lord, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. It's as if Paul's saying to these bond servants, treat your condition as a learning lab as your obedience. For Christ. Exercise your muscles of obedience and submission now for Christ. Just like children are to use their station in life as an opportunity to obey God, so too, says Paul, should slaves. But don't serve as a way of pleasing your masters, but rather as a way of pleasing God. The mundane task that you do, he says, for others should become acts of service to the King of Kings. Imagine how a servant who embraced that kind of mentality would have stood out. Imagine the witness to the power of the gospel that such a servant would have had on a non-believing master. Now, let me draw some application from this for us today. First, let me be clear, I'm not advocating for the reintroduction of bond servants as we found in the Old Testament. Though I sometimes wonder if someone working off a debt 
to someone they wronged would be better than dumping them in a cell to sit for years on end. But I digress. Since none of us are bond servants, I think the often used parallel of employee-employer relations is a good point of application. If we live to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, and if our greatest need is to know Jesus, then what better way to know Him and make Him known than by seeking to accomplish every routine daily task as if we were doing it for the King? Imagine that. What if, what if a housewife cooked every meal as if she were doing it for Jesus? What if a school teacher educated her students as if Jesus were sitting in her classroom? What if a mechanic repaired every car as if Jesus was the owner? What if an accountant were to audit books as if Jesus was the customer? Can you imagine how that would change the world? And can you imagine the impact for the gospel that such servitude would have when Christians lived that way? Church, once we understand that our primary responsibility in every arena of life is to serve the Lord, our service will become exemplary. We'll respect our bosses. We'll obey them with fear and reverence. We'll, we'll act with sincerity of heart without hypocrisy or ulterior motives. We'll serve at all times and do the right thing at all times, even when people aren't looking. And we'll serve willingly and cheerfully, knowing that the Lord is also our judge. So if you work for someone, remember that Jesus is ultimately your boss. And serve them as if that's the case. That brings us to the very last verse. In verse 9, Paul addresses the masters. To them, he gives three simple instructions, which we can, again, we can apply to ourselves as supervisors of any kind. How many of you have worked, by the way, for a boss that was toxic before? We use that word a lot today. If you're in the military and you've been in for at least a few years, you can probably identify with one of those people. My very first boss in the military was such a leader. He was puffed up. He loved to use threats and he knew nothing about serving his team. Paul says Christian masters, and by extension, I would say Christian supervisors and bosses must be different. He gives three instructions. First, he says, do the same to them. Well, what does he mean? Namely, if you hope to receive respect, show respect. If you hope to receive service, give service. However you hope your subordinates will behave toward you, behave toward them in the same way. In a nutshell, Obey the golden rule. Number two, stop threatening them, he says. Don't, don't misuse your authority. A relationship that is based in threats and misused power is not a relationship that is pleasing to God. And finally, don't expect favoritism because of your position. Slave masters then and wealthy business owners now, executives, high-ranking military members are used to being flattered and fawned upon. But God shows no favoritism. So live in the light of your equal standing with the most lowly believers by man's standing. Because in the kingdom, we all share the same master and the same judge. So whether you're an employee or an employer, a supervisor or someone supervised, remember that ultimately Jesus is your boss. Who's the boss? It's a question that's been around for as long as humanity. As Christians, we're called to walk submitting to one another. 
We submit to each other by putting the interests of others above ourselves. We serve one another. We sacrifice for one another. But we also submit within the relationships God has established and the stations of life in which we find ourselves. Whether you are a boss or have a boss, ultimately Christians are to live in recognition of the lordship and ultimate authority of Jesus Christ. Whether you are a child or a parent, it doesn't change. He is still your ultimate boss. So walk in constant submission to him and to each other. Walking in submission means that husbands submit themselves to God and love their wives with abandonment of their own self-interest and with a willingness to die for her. Walking in submission means that wives are to submit themselves to their husbands and look to them for leadership of the home. Walking in submission means that children are to obey their parents. Walking in submission means that parents should not exasperate their children, but raise them in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. Walking in submission means that employees should serve their employers and supervisors as if they were serving Christ. And walking in submission means that supervisors and bosses should treat their employees with the same respect they want to be treated, recognizing that ultimately there is no hierarchy or favoritism in the kingdom. No matter where you are in life, no matter your station, if you're a follower of Christ, you are preparing for an eternal life of service rendered to the King of Kings. Your station in life now is but a rehearsal for all of eternity. So exercise those submission and obedience muscles now. And as you do, know that you are getting to know Jesus more and more by your submission and obedience to his Lordship. By doing so, you're making him known. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning, thank you for your word, which is living and active. Thank you that we have been able to sit under it this morning, that we have it in our own language in a way that we can understand and we can, we can read. And I pray this morning for, for hearts that would be receptive and would be willing to obey. I pray this morning if there are any of us who have been fighting against the Lordship of Jesus Christ, unwilling to submit to Him, and that's manifesting itself in various relationships where we are not submitting as we are to submit. We are not serving as we are to serve. That you would bring us face to face this morning with our sin. And in this moment, the Holy Spirit would shine a light of conviction on our hearts. That we would confess, we would repent, and God, you would give us a new heart. A heart that desires to serve you, a service that's manifested in our servanthood and our submission to others. Thank you, Lord, for being with us this morning. May now we go forth as those who have not only been hearers of your word, but who are ready to be doers also. I pray this in Jesus' name.